Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, political tension starting to surround the Bank of Canada and their decision-making process. That's not necessarily a good thing. We'll find out why. Online harm. Tried to come up with legislation for years in this country. What's the holdup? Where should we get started? And an epidemic of men's depression as it relates to the workplace. So as you know, yesterday, the Bank of Canada raised the interest rate uh, by a half a point. 0.5%. Um, there was a lot of expectation, especially among bankers and investors, that it would be three quarters of a point. That was what a lot of people were anticipating. It wasn't unanimous. It never is. But that seemed to be where the consensus lied. Wasn't that high. And now there's a lot of people saying, yeah, well, did the Bank of Canada blink? The political pressure that they've been under, and it's coming from all sides, and all the different analysts are weighing in, um, is it undue influence being exerted on the Bank of Canada and influencing the way that they operate, which is not supposed to happen. Independence within the Bank of Canada is sort of a, a guiding principle. Are we seeing that eroded? To talk about that, we have Dr. Nelson Wiseman joining us, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Dr. Wiseman, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. You're welcome, Shay. It's an interesting conversation because we certainly are seeing politicians jump in, and I think that's the biggest concern, and, and, and critique the Bank of Canada. Let's go through a couple of them. First of all, Jagmeet Singh won't stop. He's been going on for a couple of weeks about the Bank of Canada and what they did wrong and what they need to do differently. He's really been vocal on this. No, I think the most vocal has been Pierre Polia. Prior, yes. Because uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, thinks that the Bank of Canada should wait and uh, not raise rates and see what impact the rates have had that have been raised up to now. But he's underlined that he supports the independence of the Bank of Canada, whereas Poliev has talked about firing the governor of the Bank of Canada, which, incidentally, I don't think he can easily do. Uh, so there are differences there. And, and there's certainly no political pressure from the government of Canada, which is the Liberals, who have stood by. Yeah. Uh, the bank. So it is very dramatic when you get politicians weighing in on these decisions. And of course, they're very important decisions. Uh, they affect people in all kinds of ways in terms of their mortgages, in terms of their home equity loans, in terms of the, uh, their credit cards rates. Uh, so, and in terms of the prospects for the labor market, which continues to be tight. So the, I don't think the bank was reacting to political pressure at all. I think what it's reacting to is just changes in the data. For example, inflation a couple of months ago was over 8%. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's slightly below 7%. And we might be... Uh, a lot is out of the hands of, of Canada and the Bank of Canada and our politicians. If oil doubles in price, and it's just floating below $90 now closer to 80 uh, about a week or 10 days ago if it doubles in price which could easily happen 
over the winter, you're going to see inflation go up dramatically. On the other hand, if uh, I don't think it'll happen, but if, if if the Western European countries can agree to some sort of price cap on uh, on Russian oil, it could be that the price of oil might stabilize or drop a bit. I can't see it getting below $80 at any time in the next uh, couple of years anyways. So when we see the kind of, it's not just politicians, we see, you know, all kind of economists and analysts also weighing in and speculating, but that's different, right? I mean, that's their job. That's sort of what they do. Um, is there a different, I mean, and is criticism of the Bank of Canada fair? I mean, they shouldn't be allowed to just operate with impunity, right? Well, they're operating, they're using their best economic judgment. And they're, they're monitoring not just what's going on in the country, they're monitoring what's going on internationally. And every um, inflationary crisis, if we want to call it that, and we probably are, and that's probably a good term, um, is different. I mean, we've had inflationary bouts in the past, but I don't think we've ever been in a situation where the uh, world's financial systems are as integrated and as affected by what is going on in another country. And uh, so Canada is actually just following the beat. Mm-hmm. It, it has been a leader in some ways. It's the, it was the first central bank of a major country that uh, at one sitting raised the interest rate by 1%. And it might uh, continue to be uh, a leader uh, because the Federal Reserve, which is the the central bank in the United States in early November is going to come down with a uh, another rate increase. And don't be surprised if they only uh, increase by a half a percent, too. And okay. Canada will have shown it's been a model. Uh, in terms of the risks of having undue influence uh, on the bank, and you're saying our, our bank is withstanding it, which is good, it's positive, that's reassuring. Um, do, do, can we see a cautionary tale in what happened in the U.K. when, when things go wrong? Yes, but what happened in the UK wasn't that politicians were interfering with with what the Bank of England was doing. What happened in the UK was on the fiscal side. In other words, you had a government which all of a sudden said, we're cutting taxes and we're going to spend a lot more money, but we're not telling you where that money is going to where we're going to get the money to pay for those things. So the bond markets went wild. Um Pension funds were up against the wall, and the Bank of England there intervened dramatically Mm -hmm. to help save uh, uh, major pensions for people. Uh, So, yes, things can get screwy, but it's not just on on the interest rate side which is what the Bank of Canada is responsible for. What what happened in England is on the on what the government did. Yeah. And our our government in Canada now is not talking about cutting taxes. If anything, we might get increased taxes. And and in fact um, and and there are a lot of other factors. You're in Alberta. Look at how things have changed dramatically in Alberta. The Alberta you were projecting a deficit not that long ago. Yep. Now Alberta's yep. going to be rolling in money. Yep. Very true. And, yeah, and at some point Alberta's going to have to consider a sales tax, just like the people pay in the rest of the country. If you if you get into a, a, a tighter situation.
Yeah, I mean, that, that's been a constant discussion out here, Dr. Wiseman. It never goes away. It's always on the radar, especially when times get tough and oil isn't at $90 a barrel. The conversation comes up once again. Um, you mentioned um, in terms of the Bank of Canada is responsible for inflation. That is their job. They want to keep inflation between 2 yeah. and 3%. We've heard some politicians say they have to be more considerate of what's going on with wages. They have to be worried about a recession and how it's hurting workers and things like that. Primarily Jagmeet Singh again. Um <laughs> their focus, should it be so singular, or is it that singular, or do they have other considerations when they decide what they're going to do? Well, you know, it is interesting because every five years they negotiate with the government. There's a negotiation about what it is that's going to drive them, and in the most recent one, which I think was agreed to last December, they were told, uh, okay, inflation is your number one target, but also you should think about the labor market. This is different from the Fed in the United States, where they're explicitly directed uh, to consider both uh, uh, the level of employment as well as inflation. But um, the problem on the labor side isn't that workers are being laid off. We've got a shortage of workers. Yes. So this is what's very unusual about this economic crisis, if you want to call it that, inflationary crisis, because usually when interest rates go up like this, companies stop investing and they and they start laying off workers. But we still have a dramatic labor shortage. I've never seen so many for hiring signs on the street. Uh, restaurants can't get people. Uh, 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 service industries and retail, there, there's a dramatic shortage. There's an incredible shortage in the trades. That's one of the impediments in construction now. I don't know about Alberta, but certainly in the rest oh, of sure. the country, like in Ontario. So, so this is what's odd. And we may get, and, and Jagmeet Singh makes a, a good point when he points out that inflation is going up more in, in terms of what we pay than Wages. Uh, the comp- then wages. Wages are going up, I don't know, around 5%. Food inflation's at 11%. But, uh, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't turn on a dime anyways. And if the government, and if the bank, imagine this, if the bank had not done anything yesterday, and I noticed that the uh, European Central Bank just today raised their interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point, and if the Federal Reserve in the U.S. now it also raises by three-quarters of a percentage point, which it seems they might do, or I think it'll be three-quarters or a half, all of a sudden the Canadian dollar would plummet. People would say, and guess what? That would feed inflation, because so much of what we buy is imported. Well, if the dollar goes down by three, four cents, it's already gone down 8% this year, you're paying more for the for the fruit and vegetables you're buying, from, which are coming from Mexico, from the United States, from wherever, or, or your electronic goods, which we don't produce, but are coming from Asia and are priced in American dollars. So there are, um, it, you know, as I say, the economic situation in every crisis is unique. This one is yeah. no different, and we hope and pray that the route that the Bank of Canada is on is going to work. Exactly. And, and, and time will tell. Uh, Dr. Wiseman, great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you were with us yesterday, you remember we had a conversation about efforts to keep kids safe when online. It's a big deal, right? We've had all kinds of stories recently, numerous law enforcement agencies warning about uh, the huge increase uh, in the number of sexploitation cases they're seeing. That's, you know, the Amanda Todd case is the big one that uh, you've probably read stories about where uh, kids get themselves into a position where they can't find a way out and and whoever they're the predator online that sort of hooked them or got them trapped in their web just asks for more and more and more and more. Uh, and ultimately it can end very tragically as it did with Amanda Todd. Um, obviously though, it's not just kids. Uh, millions and millions of Canadians report online harassment. Just, just the numbers are staggering. Hate, um, vicious online abuse. It just, it happens all the time. If you've been on social media, you've likely encountered it. So is there anything that can be done about it. That's the conversation we're going to have with Emily Laidlaw, who is the Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law and an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Calgary, also the co-chair of the Expert Panel on Online Harms, and um, wrote this piece that we're going to be discussing on behalf of that panel. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's it's not surprising. I mean, we, when we know how many millions of Canadians encounter this kind of behavior online, that the vast majority of Canadians say this is a problem and they want to see something done about it, right? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, most want to see something done about it. It's just hard to nail down precisely what that should be. Yeah, that's that's kind of the issue. Now, the government, they've been working on it. I mean, how long? It's been something that's been on the government radar for quite a while, right? Well, yeah, it's been it's been in the works for a few years, yeah. um, and I would say that even just the last few years, we're quite behind other jurisdictions. I mean, there have been laws in place in Europe since uh, 2000, and they've just recently passed legislation um, or a regulation updating their approach to this space. Why? Well, I guess that's the question. Why are we so far behind? And like you say, it's been happening in other jurisdictions, and they seem to have been able to do things. What's the holdup with us? Well, you know, and I can't figure that out. You know, I lived in the UK for a long time, and when I came back, I was surprised to see that we really hadn't had these legal developments here in Canada. Um, but, you know, uh, even on the panel, we talked about it. Maybe this is a late mover advantage. There's a lot to learn from these other jurisdictions because there were actually a lot of flaws in what they were implementing and really different approaches in the U.S. compared to Europe. You know, there was a real immunity for the different social media in, uh, under U.S. law, and it still exists. And Europe took a really hard line of almost, you know, a notice and takedown. Mm. But that, um, that's not necessarily a good thing. It just ends up incentivizing companies to take down content. And that has all kinds of unintended consequences on free expression. Um, and also, you know, it, it ends up being that people can target individuals for, for content removal. Sure. So we see that with brigading. So, so we, it was complicated space. And so I think Canada, it's time that we do something about it because we're seeing now, you know, I heard you talking about it, these, these, uh, you know, really horrific instances of, of child exploitation yeah. online. 
you know, the impacts of mis and disinformation and the increase really of just hate speech and, and incitement to violence, and it's time to act. Okay, so I understand fully that it's a very complex situation. There's a number of different moving pieces and players, and how do you go about tackling it? Is there... Is there um, some common ground, some agreed upon points where we can say, okay, this is something that we can address and we all know this is an issue. How do we tackle it? Or, I mean, have we boiled it down to that at least? Well, I mean, at least in terms of the panel, we really circled around this idea uh, that these these platforms, social media, have a duty to act responsibly. So think of it as product safety. Right, they're and, and they're not the primary wrongdoers. I mean, the individuals who are posting yeah. hate speech and terrorist propaganda—they are. But platforms that host these spaces have a duty to to put put things in place to ensure that their product is safe. Now, is it going to be perfectly safe? No, and there's no way they can be held to that standard. But they should be held accountable for for you know acting when they become aware of of these problems, right? Like if their space is becoming actively used for child luring, then they should be able to account for that and say, these are the steps that we're taking to try to counteract that and ensure it's as safe as possible for children and for others to use. Is, is there a difference between, like you say, okay, we, we, we notice something horrible, let's react to it. Um, what about the way that these platforms are built? The way that we, we know that certain information is pushed um, certain, you know, all the algorithms. I don't know how it works, but we know there is a way that these platforms are constructed. Is that something we should be looking at to make sure that, you know, hate and, and, and threats and all the rest of that stuff is a consideration within those algorithms? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what the advantage of taking more of a product safety approach yeah. is. Because, you know, the one issue you have to deal with is, okay, yeah, there's specific, you know, content that might be problematic that, Someone should, you know, have a complaints mechanism and the social media company should yeah. act. But the other is the social media, like their design of their spaces and their recommender systems. And we saw in the UK recently a coroner's inquest, you know, held uh, Instagram and Pinterest accountable for the death of the youth by because of the recommender system pushing content, hmm. promoting suicide, promoting different types of self-harm. So um, so there is space here uh, under a duty of care that these companies should be accountable for how they recommend content, right? Yeah. And it's more, do you have systems in place to address the impact on free speech and privacy? Do you have a system in place to address what the different risks of harm are? And do we have a third party that can audit companies? to be able to ensure that they're meeting those standards. This is sort of the system that that, that at least I'm hoping to see is proposed yep. by Heritage Canada with the forthcoming bill. That's what I wanted to ask. Who monitors this? You mentioned a third party. How does, I mean, is it government that we put in charge of this? Is it somebody independent? Who Who is it that's monitoring, um, you know, the, the way these platforms are functioning? Well, I mean, you know, we need a new regulator, and I think that's the answer. So the idea that this goes through courts just is not practical. It, you know, when these things happen, it is is fast, um, and it goes viral. But also when it comes to the recommender systems, it's not practical to look at this through a liability perspective through courts, except yeah. in extreme cases. So what we need is something like a privacy commissioner, but with teeth, some online regulator that can investigate kind of systemic failures by companies and provide, you know, work with industry to sort of create codes of practice 
and that evolve with the different technologies. I mean, it's not just the Facebooks of the world anymore. We've no. moved on to the TikToks. We've got Clubhouse. We've got Discord. Like, there's all kinds of different players in this space. Um, and so we need a regulator that can engage in those investigations. But we also need access by uh, by researchers and civil society. And this is something that has, uh, is now in law in Europe under the Digital Services Act. Because, you know, the, one of the issues is transparency. And the companies will issue transparency reports. But we have no way of assessing right. whether you know, their data and whether what they're saying is true or not. So there needs to be access, not just by a regulator, but by re- for, by researchers and others who have the expertise to say, okay, you know what, they, they are satisfying these particular obligations. Actually, I would recommend improvement on these different points and just generally holding them accountable. It's so important the way that you frame it. Uh, you know, we need the transparency, but we need to have people who can actually actually read the data and come to some understanding of what the transparency is telling us. Because as users, we're all involved in this space, but we don't know. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how the algorithms are influencing what we see and how we interact with the platform. So, having that third party, some independence, someone who knows what they're looking at, and the transparency, you put all that together. Now you've got a place to start. Yeah, precisely. And right now what we're dependent on is scandal. and We're dependent yeah. on whistleblowers leaking information. And that's just not a sustainable system right now. When you look at the ways that we interact, it's online, right? It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our, our expression, but it's also causing tremendous harm. What's the likelihood we'll see something concrete and constructive in the near future? Like you say, other jurisdictions have already taken these steps. Yeah, they all have taken these steps. I know that Heritage Canada, I, I understand, is actively working on this. All yeah. I can, I, I don't know when they're going to propose it. My hope is it will be sometime in the new year that we're going to see a bill before us. But what I, what I'm really worried about is that this is going to get bogged down in debates, and then it's going to become the kind of polarized debates that we're seeing right now with all kinds of internet regulations that have been proposed. So Bill C11, Bill C18. Highly polarized. The UK started, you know, the initial proposal they made for online harms legislation was about five years ago. And they are still, they finally have a bill proposed, but it's been put on pause. That's a terrible scenario. That's five more years of uncertainty in Canadian law and about protection for individuals and groups from harms. And we just can't keep going with that. No, I agree with you so much. Uh, Emily, great insight. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. All right, we're going to switch gears completely and talk about a really important conversation. We're going to talk about some new data that came out this week that's pretty concerning. Actually, it's quite concerning. Our next guest uh, was behind some surveys and, and some research looking into this and found that half of Canadian men meet the diagnosis of clinical depression and a third of Canadian men Think about suicide or self-harm every week. Really alarming numbers. So to talk about that, we have Dr. John Agrodnichuk, a professor of psychiatry and founder of the Heads Up Guys Men's Health Program at the University of British Columbia. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Shay. You know, those headline numbers, they're, they're really shocking. So let's break it down a bit here. First of all, um, who, like, what age groups, what demographic, who are we talking about in terms of who participated in this survey? Well, I think that's important to clarify. So this was a survey of men in the workplace. So I think we need to keep that context in mind when we think about the results and and how they can generalize. But 
we what we really wanted to do is kind of take a sort of a, a the temperature of of men's mental health in the workplace knowing that you know we got a pretty serious problem when it comes to men's mental health you know th- 75% of suicide deaths are by men uh in not only in Canada but in most nations and the status quo is not working mm-hmm. you know we're not having conversations about it we're not thinking differently about uh what we can do and we know from a lot of research that while the workplace can contribute to mental health challenges of people, it also has immense potential for being uh, a support structure for for supporting men's health or, or in everyone's health, uh, for that matter. So we wanted to just see, you know, how are men in the workplace doing? What are the, some of the factors that might be contributing to it? And what are they saying about what they actually need uh, as far as support and resources in the workplace to be better? And you make such, I mean, it makes perfect sense if you think about how the workplace and mental health go hand in hand. I mean, for so many of us, the workplace is, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of the predominant features in our lives. We spend so much time there and it, it's so involved in what we do. So it makes perfect sense that it's going to affect uh, affect our, our mental health. And also it could be a resource. I mean, it's that big of a part of our lives, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's exactly why we did it. And you know, for for most uh, adults, where do we spend the majority of our waking time? At work, right? And, and so it's like it seems natural that we look to the workplace as uh, uh, you know, having like I said that that potential to actually contribute to our wellness rather than being a, t- a deterrent to it. Um, and. You know, I'm just thinking about it. Like you say, we spend so much time there. It's so much of who we are when it's not good. When the workplace is a detriment to your mental health, that can probably be more of a factor than anywhere else in life almost, right, in terms of how much of an impact that can have. Absolutely. You know, it's... You know, for example, in the survey, we found that a third, nearly a third of the people were saying they're burned out. Mm-hmm. And in fact, 35% were saying they dread going to work. Now, just think about that. And it's like, this is where you spend most of your waking time and you dread going there. So just imagine what that does to your, to your sense of self and sense of purpose and, and you feel absolutely depleted from that. And, and that's going to have knock on effects. You know, we don't go in and out the door of work and we just kind of leave stuff behind. We carry that stuff around uh, all day, every day. You know, when we talk about men and mental health, and I'm wondering, you know, we talk about it more than we ever have before, but probably nowhere near enough. Is How much of this is still the fact that men just don't talk about this? We, we, We suck it up. We be men. And you know what I mean? How much of that has still carried over? Well, I think it's still there quite a bit. You know, there's the socialized aspect, you know, to be a real man, you yeah. got, you got to tough it out, be stoic, don't show any weakness or vulnerability, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's still there. It's quite prominent. But I would say, you know, over the last number of years, and in fact, the period of COVID, I think actually helped. Uh, it is changing. There, you know, over the pandemic, there is more and more sort of public conversations about mental health in general, the importance of reaching out, getting help. And I think a lot of men are listening. You know, my, for example, my, my private practice has always had a fair number of men, but over the pandemic, it's been exclusively men. Hmm. And I think it's been actually supported by the fact that, you know, virtual uh, avenues for receiving help 
have helped. You know, I've got guys calling from their basement, their garage, yep. their truck on a walk, and a little cubby on a construction site. And I guarantee you, not one of those guys would have walked through my door before. No, you make an excellent point. You're so you're so right. Um, do you anticipate now that we're seeing COVID do whatever it does, and, and I won't dare say end, um, but will that carry over in your practice? Is that going to become sort of the standard for people who want to use that option and find it more accessible? Will that open a door to more mental health support? I, I think it will. You know, most people I know, including myself, are, are seeing people in person again, and, and people are coming uh, for that. But there's still a ton of people. And it's like, you know, this the video therapy, if you want to call it, yeah. you know, while it has some limitations, of course, the just the uh, flexibility that it offers people is immense. And I think, you know, there's... Uh, just incredible potential to reach people in places that they, you know, without the video option, they never will go and get help. We talk about, uh, you know, the work that you're doing, sort of how it relates to the workplace. And and you mentioned earlier that the workplace can be a a form of support, or we can at least incorporate that into the workplace. Uh, What are you talking about? What does that look like? How can we make it, you know, if it is a drag on our mental health, how can we turn that around? Well, there's a lot of things that we can start doing in the workplace to help, you know, that's things like uh, just, and, and this is directly from the respondents, they want more conversations about mental health at work. You know, it's, you know, people are hurting. A lot of people recognize that they're hurting. Sometimes they don't, but most times they do. And they, they want to know, you know, how do I actually access a support and services? And the workplace is a great place to, you know, provide that segue to, to helpful resources. And so there's that. Uh, it's, you know, the workplace, one of the fundamental needs that we all have is to, to be respected uh, and, and accepted by others for who we are, not only for what we do. And so if employment places treat people with respect and dignity and show genuine care, people feel just generally better about themselves. And I know that may sound really simple and, and uh, not so profound, but it is actually really important just to be respected for who you are as a, you know, as a decent human being. And, you know, there are a lot of workplaces that I've visited them and that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, be careful how I, how I say this in what would we, we would consider predominantly male workplaces and we all know they exist and you can, mm-hmm. you can say whatever they want to be. Um, is it, cause I know where I work, mental health, especially during the pandemic has been an ongoing discussion and, um, the people, the powers that be down in Toronto have made sure we all know about the supports that are available. And I've seen it mm-hmm. in other companies as well. Um, has that translated to, as we would say, male-dominated industries, or is there still that barrier that exists there? No, I think it really has. And in fact, you know, well, I'll, I'll say one of the industries, construction, you know, for example, in BC here, there's the BC uh, Construction Safety Association, something like this. They reached out and they said, look, you know, a lot of the people that work in our industry are male. There's a lot of issues that we're dealing with. We want to help them. And so they've, they've put a lot of effort and resources into doing that. You know, are they where they want to be? No, but right. they're actually putting in the effort. So, so I think it is translating into those industries. I mean, I guess the goal ultimately, and, and uh, last one for you here is if we can get it to where a guy who breaks his wrist or, uh, you know, is sick will phone in and say, I'm sick. Um, 
if we can get mental health into the same category to say, you know what, I can't do it today. I need to go to the doctor. I need to get some help. If we can translate that from our physical health to our mental health, that's ultimately where we want to get, right? Absolutely. Health is health. And so you're absolutely right. You break your leg, you you hurt your back or whatever, you go and get help. The same thing when we have what I would say, you know, psychological injury injuries. And so, you know, when you know you're not operating at your best, you know, rather than trying to tough it out, which rarely if ever works. Yeah reach out and for help that's you being active that's you be taking control that's you wanting to be better there is absolutely no shame in that in fact that you should feel proud that you're you're actually looking after yourself uh last one here and i i I said i'd let you go but it's a good one and i know it was in the research that i read yesterday somebody saying how many of these stressed out and depressed people are self-medicating which isn't good that's part of the findings too a lot right yeah, it is. You know, we, we had like over 40% of the respondents indicating that, you know, they, they're engaged in some form of hazardous drinking. Yep. And, and, you know, that is a very common issue for people when, when they don't know where to reach out for help, when they want to numb the pain, if they feel too much shame reaching out. And so they retreat within. Yep. And, you know, while, you know, if you, if you drink or smoke or whatever, the pain may go away temporarily. But it's always worse later because you feel worse about yourself Mm -hmm. that you can't get over it, so to speak. And so it is a real big issue. Yeah, the problem's still there, and and now you may have created another one on top of it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Dr. Ogrodnichuk, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.